I'm Fran Scott, and this is How to Build a Railway. Can a railway put the UK on track for net zero before it even starts running? Well, that is the aim of HS2's Zero Carbon Action Plan. By 2035, HS2 aims to achieve net zero. Not only will HS2 bring the UK cities closer together when the trains start running, but it will also bring the country closer to its net zero carbon goals. The trains will be running from renewable energy, and they will make it easier for people to get out of their cars and will reduce the demand for air travel. HS1, connecting European rail services to London St Pancras International, has already shown us that this is possible, cutting flights to France and Belgium by more than 50%. HS2 is not waiting for the trains to roll before making a major contribution to cutting carbon emissions. It's actually making a difference right now. The construction industry currently accounts for a whopping 39% of global carbon emissions. HS2's net zero carbon plan targets the key sources of these emissions, like those from the use of diesel-powered equipment on construction sites, and from the embodied carbon in materials like steel and concrete. To achieve these cuts, the railway is working closely with contractors across its sites and with academic experts to identify the most efficient interventions and demonstrate their efficiency. By doing this, they are not only cutting emissions, but they are also showing how a net zero approach can cut costs. All of the results of these interventions are being shared publicly through HS2's learning legacy. The public investment in the railway is paying for a new, sustainable way to travel as part of a growing and green economy. But it is also enabling construction industry suppliers to make purchases of equipment that will be able to work without emissions for decades to come. Emma Head is Technical Services Delivery Director, which encompasses the environment and health and safety for HS2. The carbon agenda is super important to HS2. At the heart of HS2 really is a green project. It's part of cleaning up construction. We also contribute to the government's target of being net zero by 2050. And we have a real ambition to be a net zero company by 2025. In January 2022, HS2 published its Environment and Sustainability Vision. And that really is to outline our ambition in relation to environment and sustainability and to make some clear commitments. First of all, it outlines our commitments around carbon and making sure that we build HS2 in a cleaner and more sustainable way. And it's also about considering our impact on the natural environment and making sure that we try to enhance biodiversity wherever we can. Andrea Davidson is part of the environmental team at HS2. Andrea heads up the environmental sciences team and they're a group of specialists looking at key areas including waste, carbon, climate change, noise and vibration and air quality. The team looks at compliance across contractors and makes sure that HS2 is a truly sustainable railway. HS2's environmental and sustainability vision is a key part of that process. 
What it does is really set out some of our ambitions for corporate activities, as well as from in terms of sort of operation that we want to have zero carbon electricity from day one of operation. But in saying all of that, what we build and how we operate is great, but it's how we build it that's as important. So in terms of cleaning up construction, we've been focused, for example, on the use of diesel on sites, and we made a fundamental commitment to be diesel free on all construction sites by 2029. And I'm really pleased to celebrate that so far we already have 19 diesel free sites. We've seen a lot of our contractors be really innovative and looking at investing in different plant and mechanical equipment, looking at sources of electricity, looking at hydrogen fuels and hybrid plant so that we can really start to accelerate cleaning up our construction sites. So in our carbon plan, we've set ambitions to be net zero construction by 2035. We've also set ambitions around reducing emissions from heavy goods vehicles. So all the lorry movements across the project, bringing material to sites or removing spoil or waste from sites, as well as having diesel-free construction sites by 2029. And then also reducing carbon emissions by 50% from concrete and steel. All great ambitions and targets, but it's all how we get there and what we do. And that's why in our diesel-free plan, we've sort of set out some of the sort of key activities or steps that sites can take and should be taking to get to that point. These steps aren't picked on a whim. They are based on industry-wide collaboration. So our ambitions are set based on sort of benchmarking and reviews of what else is being done across the industry. So looking at reducing emissions from concrete and steel, for example, and route maps that maybe national highways have put together or the Institute of Civil Engineers. And our ambitions are really sort of a review of that, also looking at where we're going to be in terms of our construction cycles across the phases. Every single construction site is different. We've got over 300 across the route already. You've got some that have absolutely no space to move. They've got residences or schools or really sensitive receptors on all of their boundaries. You've got others that are in the absolute middle of nowhere and getting access to mains power is just almost impossible. So you've got these long stretches of route and really small constrained sites. So there's never going to be a silver bullet one size fits all in construction. Andrea's team are working with a group of academics from Imperial College London to help build that scientific grounding. Danielle Marsh is part of that team. He's the programme manager within the Centre of Low Emission Construction, or CLEC, at the college's Environmental Research Group. Imperial College London provide academic support to a lot of the innovation projects that are being run across HS2 around air quality and emissions from machine. We are working with them and their joint venture contractors to produce evidence as to what works, what doesn't work, and where the real benefits are to air quality across the sites are, and how that impacts the, the, the health of the workers across the project. Carl D'Souza is a research associate at the CLEC, and he's been working to help develop a baseline which HS2 can judge its interventions against. Yeah, so one of the earliest packages or work packages that we did with HS2 a few years ago 
involved looking at their current fleet of non-road mobile machinery or NRMM. He doesn't spend his working life in a lab deep within Imperial's West London campus. Oh no. For us, our laboratory is the field. We use portable emissions measurement systems, PEMS as we call it. We take these lab-grade instruments out into the field. We strap them onto an excavator um, and measure both the tailpipe concentrations, so your CO2 percentage, for example, or your NOx PPM. And we also measure the flow of exhaust mass from coming out of the tailpipe. And we couple them together to give us a total emissions that comes out from a particular machine. Once you've actually established the baseline, and you've got a really good representation of what fleet is actually out there being used across the project and what the emissions are of using that with diesel. You can then start to look at innovation, whether it's using different fuels or engine modification or moving to completely different types of machine, whether they're running on hydrogen or electric and looking at the emissions that come from those pieces of technology and then looking back at that baseline and saying, well, if we took all of the excavators at 20 tonnes and we change them from diesel to electric, what would be the impact from the emissions across the whole of this project? So that's why you have that baseline in place. You can start to measure the impact of intervention, and then you can start to look at the cost of those interventions and say, what would be the cost to the, to the project and what would be the emission reduction potential to the project? And therefore, is there value in doing this? Or where is the greatest value in, in bringing an intervention? That baseline, yes, is a tool for HS2, but it also helps its contractors and suppliers make sure that the innovations and new working practices they adopt will be commercially viable. Obviously, we're working with our contractors. They're looking to break even or make, make a profit. If you can have interventions that's actually going to save them money and reduce emissions at the same time, then that's an absolute win-win. And why wouldn't they adopt those sorts of technologies? One of the biggest changes in the construction sector in recent years has been the adoption of electric equipment, so electric vehicles. Now, this includes smaller tools like telehandlers that are essentially, I suppose, a forklift truck with a big long arm that supports its forks at the end of it. But it also now includes some of the biggest equipment that's in regular use. In terms of then this next generation of plant machinery, which is really exciting, is we've had uh, three of the first five fully electric crawler cranes in the UK on our sites. We've had a 250 tonner at Old Oak Common Station and a 160 tonne also there, and then 160 tonne on the Canterbury Road ventilation shaft, which was our first diesel-free site. Steve Bradbury is technical lead for Select Plant, the Langerorque subsidiary that supplied these Lieber unplugged cranes. The cranes can run for six hours on battery alone. And that includes both the peak power, so that's the power that's needed for lifting, and the constant power which is needed to move these machines around. Bear in mind that these machines weigh almost as much as the loads that they lift. And these cranes can be plugged into the mains, keeping the batteries charged as they work or even between shifts. And these cranes are crawler cranes, which are mounted on tracks with a steel lattice boom. And they can travel around site, performing specific lifts. 
or they might be used in a regular location, for example, over a tunnel shaft, lifting the same loads over and over again. And they're rated and they get their names from the load that they can lift. And the company were excited by the potential of these cranes to meet their own climate goals. But buying them was not an easy decision. Battery life is always going to be a concern. You know, with a diesel engine, okay, God forbid the engine should go west, but the cost of replacement of a diesel engine isn't particularly expensive. You know, you're probably sub 100 grand, well under 100 grand. If a battery, if a set of batteries go, my goodness, you know, they're vastly expensive. These are not cheap machines. The battery packs add hundreds of thousands of pounds to their cost. The, the cost of the machine was substantially higher than its equivalent diesel machine. So all of a sudden the higher rate has to match. Um, and, you know, trying to push for an increased higher rate in the current market is very difficult. So it helps with some of the projects, the likes of HS2, where they're willing to trial and push the boundaries. And that that is enabling us to buy equipment. I think without HS2, we probably wouldn't be, we wouldn't have the courage to do what we've done. So, so HS2, hats off, absolutely brilliant project, and it will push the industry on. Swapping out the power source changes how the crane is operated, and their experienced drivers would have to change how they work. We've got drivers who are going from um, diesel operation to electric operation, and there is a difference because a lot of the drivers drive by the noise of the winches and the noise of the engine. All of a sudden, you know, rather than driving on the accelerator, you're actually driving in a different sort of way. By having the choice of working with the cranes either plugged in or unplugged, running them from batteries, Steve and his colleagues have more choice about how they use these cranes on site. And in essence, it removed a risk from the site. You can track with it plugged in, but in all fairness, it's it's asking for trouble. So we, we ask the sites to unplug them, track them and plug them back in. And in reality, you think, oh, well, we might be tracking for 10 minutes. Well, 10 minutes of charging time is nothing. You're not gaining a lot of amps in that time. So unplug it, get rid of that risk, get rid of that, all of that cable management. Just track it to where you need it. Ideally, plug it back in again. But these big crawler cranes are just one example of the innovative equipment that is being used on HS2 sites. And while crawler cranes use power intermittently, piling rigs, which are similar looking equipment, but used to hammer foundation piles deep into the ground, they work constantly. We've also had a fully electric piling rig on our site. So the first Bauer piling rig, uh, started at uh, Belfer BC Vinci up in area north to do a trial that run, it, they ran a trial next to a diesel piling rig to see how it would um, operate. Would it be able to do the same work? Would it be able to have the same strength? Again, fantastic. It kept up with the diesel version. JCB is doing a lot of work in the hydrogen space and they have publicized their hydrogen excavator, telehandler and a a refueling unit uh, that should hit the market really soon. And we're quite excited to trial some of those. We're working with a company called Ulemco and with our contractor up in area north, Belfer BT Vinci, we will be trialing three heavy goods vehicles that have been retrofitted to run off this dual fueling system. 
it essentially works off the engine reaching a certain temperature and then the vehicle will switch to using hydrogen. But if there's no hydrogen, it will run off diesel. One is going to be a road sweeper, which is the vehicle probably causing the most nuisance up and down the roads, cleaning the roads to make sure that there's no mud on the roads. The other one is a scissor lift, which is commonplace in the construction industry and a 26-tonner low loader. They are scheduled to be trialled this year. But it's taking a road sweeper and saying, actually, this is a road sweeper that runs on diesel, um, but can we take this, um, and can we fit a hydrogen tank and can we have that engine that will run on diesel and hydrogen, one fuel or the other, so therefore can you run it in clean mode? If you're running it in an urban environment where you've got sensitive receptors around you, can you reduce those emissions from the engine to water vapour? The engine technology is, um, is very similar, so it's really looking at the machines that are, are ripe for retrofit, where there's potentially space on the existing chassis to put those additional fuel tanks and additional components that you need and introduce it. But again, it will need to come with a, uh, a driver training package to actually show them how the technology works and where the benefits are in that. So why not just buy battery electric and hydrogen equipment to use across HS2 sites? Well, for one thing, HS2 is spending public money. It has a responsibility to make sure its innovations are cost effective. And the equipment also needs to be carbon efficient. These machines are made of high strength and hard wearing steels, made using energy intensive processes. They're often designed to be used for decades. Just scrapping these older diesel powered machines would then waste all of that embodied carbon. So we did a lot of work with a company named Eminox who had a retrofit technology, which is essentially an after-treatment system that you can fit to a much older, dirtier pieces of equipment to make it meet the latest emission standards. So you've got sort of a, another sort of key efficiency here of where instead of deploying a brand new piling rig to one of our sites that's gonna cost upwards of 1.8 million pounds, you can take a much older one, retrofit it for significantly less uh, HS2 and its partners are working to bring older machines up to modern standards. Regulations for construction equipment have become tighter over the past 15 years or so, and the regulations do lag behind similar standards for cars and goods vehicles. So older machines, they're rated stage 3A in Europe, and in the US there are broadly similar tiers, and these produce more emissions than newer machines which are rated at stage 5. Now you can retrofit these older machines so they can end up working as cleanly as the newer ones. Another project that we've done with HS2 was a retrofit project. This looked at taking an older bit of kit and retrofitting it with the latest emissions abatement technology that's out there. This means taking an older bit of machinery and bolting on after-treatment emissions abatement technology, which will help to clean up the current emissions from that machine. This can be done in the form of an SCR or DPF, which is selective catalytic reduction and diesel particulate filter, which reduces both your NOx as well as your particles that come out of the tailpipe of an older bit of machine. SCR and DPFs, like those Carl's describes, aren't cheap. 
and they aren't small. It can be really hard to fit them onto machines that are already highly optimized for weight, size and power. But fitting them can have immediate benefits for site workers and the public. Our role in that project was to see what the emissions were before the MNOX system was on there and what the emissions are after the MNOX SCRDPF system was on there. This particular retrofit was to address the NOX and particulates. So it was taking technology that had been previously used on the um, bus and coach uh, sector, but then transferring it across to off-road engines and actually proving that it works in off-road engines because they are operated in slightly different ways, the drive cycles are different, um, and then able to actually measure that benefit. And within this particular project, HS2, I believe, was going to use something like 90% of the UK's piling rig fleet, most of which would not meet the minimum emission standard required for being used within the project. But by providing a retrofit solution, it meant that we could use the existing machines available in the UK with retrofit rather than having to replace all those machines. Now, one of the things that this project demonstrated was it's possible to take the engine beyond the stage five engine limit values. So because it showed that we could take it beyond that, have it cleaned up, we were able to have this engine family approved through the Energy Saving Trust for retrofit to be applied across other machines with large and medium sized engines in them. So this was the first retrofit approval for non-road mobile machinery for NOx and particle reduction in the UK. On any construction site, a key source of carbon and particulate emissions is often diesel generators. And so if you're using more electric kit, then surely you're just going to need more generators. Well, not on an HS2 site. What we don't want is to have electric equipment working on site and charged by a diesel generator around the back. One way to avoid this is with new generators fueled by hydrogen. And this is an emerging technology, but one that has fantastic potential. We had a, a GeoPura Siemens Energy hydrogen fuel cell generator on our site. We had two that replaced a 250 kVA generator. They worked absolutely fantastically. It was, it was really flawless. It was an excellent way to show site teams that you could have a reliable solution that wasn't a diesel generator, with the only byproduct being water. It wasn't to see if there was a cost benefit, because the, the fuel cost at the moment is more expensive, but it was to demonstrate the fact you can run a site. There's no energy security risk to running a site on hydrogen fuel cell, and it's to showcase it, to bring it into site, let the industry see it, this is what it looks like, this is how it works, this is where it goes, and this is what it does. But actually, you still have a shipping container that's giving you energy. So it's not that dissimilar to looking at the diesel um, generators, just you don't see the big black cloud of black carbon being pumped out the flapper cap. Daniel and Carla are also working on another project, which makes sure that when generators must be used, they are used as efficiently as possible. We look at other things on construction sites, and the, the way that electricity is used on construction sites. So as well as um, trying to produce clean energy, it's about how you reduce the requirement of energy on the sites. So other projects that we've worked on with HS2 and Balfour BT, Sunbelt and Invisible Systems has been looking at what they call their Econet system. So Econet is a way of 
having a smart power management system in place so actually you can reduce the size of the generators you're using on your construction site. You're producing less power, but you're using power more efficiently across the day. And that can be just by prioritizing where the power needs to be at any point in the day. So early in the, in the uh, operation of a site, the workers are coming in, they need to have dry, clean PPE to wear out on the site, and you might see the kettle going on a lot, and there's a big demand in, in that part of the accommodation block. So why would you put the recharging of electric vehicles in at the same time, where maybe you can actually be doing that process later in the day when there's less demand in other areas? Modern tower cranes are, almost without exception, electronically powered, but still they often draw that electricity from a generator. When I look at tower cranes and them being paired with generators, I think it's absolutely dire thing. Select have taken a different approach on HS2 sites. Some generators may still be needed, most often just at the start of operations, but these can now be much smaller. An innovator called Punch Flybrid has produced a flywheel technology that reduces the size of the generator you would need to deploy with a tower crane. And again, reducing the size of your generator straight away, less fuel burn per hour, fewer emissions. The bulk of our cranes do go on mains. We see 10 to 20% of the fleet on generators. Often they're on a generator at the start of the job because there's a delay getting power to site. And occasionally, there the, the simply isn't the power throughout the job. So, but, and, and there is a slight difference. The select fleet are very large capacity cranes. So the bulk of our fleet is over 24 tonne capacity. A substantial amount is over 32 tonne capacity, and some of it's over 66 tonne capacity, which in the tower crane world is big. So yeah. therefore, their power supply matches that. It's big. The power demand isn't used throughout the day. Rather, a burst of power is needed as the crane starts lifting. Every time the, the, the operator goes to start a mechanism, there's a sudden surge in demand, exactly the same as accelerating from the traffic lights. Your power requirement to get the vehicle moving is substantial and it drops off very quickly. And it's the same with a the crane. There's a sudden surge in demand as the mechanism gets moving and then that levels off. There is a simplistic way to view this in that the power supply to a crane must match its peak demand. But with a punch flybrid, crane suppliers like Steve can think instead more about its averaged energy consumption. What we do with the punch flybrid is that is a flywheel. So we charge it up from the mains. It pulls relatively small power and it sits there spinning so it's a four kilo flywheel sitting in a vacuum powered by a 120 kilowatt motor. So it sits there just spinning. It's low resistance, so it doesn't draw much. But when, the, when it senses the crane is demanding power, it delivers power. So it delivers a sudden surge up to around 120 amps. That doesn't sound like a lot, but what that does is it takes all the effort off a generator and allows the generator time to pick up. The generator will sit there at a constant speed, but obviously it has a varying load. So when the crane suddenly says, I want, I need power, it will load up that generator and it has to react because if it slows down too much, it, it, the frequency drops and the crane will stop working. That generator has to be oversized. 
So it has to almost accelerate past the demand and then level off. And what the flybrid does is it allows a much smaller engine to do that. So effectively it delivers the peak and then lets the engine recover and deliver the constant. Some of Select's biggest tower cranes are what are known as luffers. So instead of having that classic jib that sticks out flat at 90 degrees from the vertical mast, they instead have a luffing jib. And this can be angled up or down. And that lets the crane reach higher and avoids the need for it to move over neighbouring sites and public spaces. So to give you an example, on one of our, the big cranes, which is a 66-tonne you know, lifter, it requires, so the, the requirement from the manufacturer says it would need a, three, uh, a 650 kVA generator. Now, 650s don't really exist readily available. So the, the, the nearest size that we can pick up is 800. So we'll stick an 800 kVA generator powering this crane. If we then put on a, a, a flybrid system, we can drop that generator down to 320 kVA. And that delivers real savings, both in terms of carbon and in terms of cash. It saves the site thousands of pounds in fuel and hire. And it's almost that much a week it's saving. It's vast, the saving. It's so logical. Not only have, do you get your green stamps, that you've, you've done something that totally makes sense, but you're actually saving money at the same time. So, so as sustainability things go, this one, absolutely phenomenal. It even allows these giant cranes to be plugged straight into the grid. We've done trials again for HS2. We've trialled it on the mains. So again, reducing the size of the supply required to power that crane. So it drops that, that down. Dragging a high-power cable around a construction site isn't as simple as pulling an extension lead out of the window to power your lawnmower. It also means that the power cable size from, from the mains to the flybrid can reduce as well. So if you can get that flybrid next to the crane, you can reduce your power cable sizes, which not only saves you in copper, but also saves you all the cost of someone dragging those cables in. And cable pulling is a, a specialist thing, and we bring in companies for the bigger cables to drag them across site. But the real savings come from actually cutting out the generator. Assuming that that crane was working for 60 hours a week over 50 weeks, so roughly a year, your generator, standard 800 kVA generator, would be costing you around 200, uh, with fuel, around £230,000 for the year to run your crane. If you stick it with a flybrid, that drops to around 105000 So the saving is huge. Now, we can all find ourselves at work and sometimes, you know, you've got to wait to move on to the next task. And if you're in the office or at home, then that means that the heat and the lights are on. And maybe, I don't know, you have a quick go at today's Wordle. And all of that can be efficiently powered off the grid. But when it comes to a crane operator sitting in the cab, waiting on a truck to bring the next load to site, this can mean running a huge generator just to power a little air conditioning unit. So to keep emissions down, the operators need to make sure that they only use the power when it's needed. And this approach is called anti-idling. We've done a bit of work with the Supply Chain Sustainability School and some of our other partners contractors or academic partners to produce an anti-idling toolkit. 
really sets up some reminders for the industry of why it's so important for an operator to switch their engine off. Imperial College London also gave a really good overview of uh, exposure. So what is the operator actually being exposed to on a daily basis? Why it's so important for their own health to turn their engine off? As we're introducing new technology into the construction industry, it's about addressing operator behaviour and how those machines are actually being used and whether or not you can bring in further efficiencies by having anti-idling and actually just, just looking at how the machines are used across the site. So you can, you can definitely um, bring some benefits. The great benefit there is, yes, we're talking about cost saving, we're talking about carbon saving, but there's a huge emission benefit, reducing the emissions, coming out of the tailpipe, re reducing exposure, which is really where we need to get to as an industry. HS2 is developing a methodical approach to cutting carbon and particular emissions from its sites. It's supporting equipment suppliers, allowing them to invest in new electric equipment and emerging technologies like hydrogen fuel cell generators. It has effectively retrofitted almost all of the UK piling rig fleet, bringing it up to the latest emission standards. And all of this equipment can now be used on other projects, keeping the country on track for net zero. But can the lessons the railway and its academic partners have learnt be spread across the industry as a whole? Andrea thinks it can. So essentially it creates reliable case studies for these different companies to highlight their capability and to showcase that it's been trialled and tested on a different site. What the Construction Leadership Council is aiming to do is create a depository of case studies so that the industry has a central location to go to. The lessons learnt from projects like this will be shared across the industry. And this is HS2's Learning Legacy Programme. This is a deep, broad and easily searchable public database of case studies and papers that will help other project owners and contractors to implement HS2's innovations on their own sites. And this will help fulfil HS2's mission to help the entire UK construction industry move to net zero. It can be found online by searching for HS2 Learning Legacy, and a link is included in the show notes. All the projects are reported back to the industry in the form of a report um, that's available via the HS2 Media Centre. We are also in the process of academically writing up these for peer review publications. The former might be a bit more interesting to some rather than the latter. But yes, all of this is out in the public domain. The lessons learnt from the project aren't just relevant to the directors of big construction firms. Everyone on site can learn from them. At HS2, we've formed something called the Green Network, and that's an employee network for everyone to get involved in the green agenda. HS2 is a once-in-a-generation programme, and many of the people that work on HS2 really want to be part of the legacy of the programme, and are so are really committed to the Carbon Net Zero agenda. By being part of the Green Network, we're able to build an environmentally conscious workforce, we're able to offer training and help people measure their own personal carbon 
impact and make better greener choices for example on how they choose to travel the types of car they choose to buy and we're generally looking to embed a consciousness across hs2 around sustainability and carbon the investment in hs2 as a long-term project of national significance allows the uk to achieve goals far beyond just increasing rail capacity HS2 is a once-in-a-lifetime investment by UK government and it's absolutely important that our role as client, we really do lead the way on the green agenda. HS2 is working with National Highways and Network Rail and other key government clients to make sure that we are investing in innovation and developing solutions for future infrastructure projects. HS2 at its heart is a green project. We really are about offering carbon net zero from day one of operation and so making a greener and cleaner method of transport. And I think the legacy for HS2 will be that infrastructure for future generations. But in addition, we will have also learned some lessons for construction along the way and will have developed new working practices and new materials to really help to clean up construction. next time on How to Build a Railway. On HS2, we've seen our workforce work 60 million hours in the last 12 months. And that's only in the construction of phase one. The challenges facing HS2 are, are not that different from many other infrastructure projects. But what makes HS2 so different is the sheer scale of things. One of the most exciting things about this project and probably what really attracted me was that we're actually trying to really emphasise the importance of looking at health from the very early stages of design right through construction and into like all the other maintenance, all the other sectors. Your host has been me, Fran Scott, and thanks to our guests, Emma Head, Carl DeSousa, Andrea Davidson, Daniel Marsh, and Steve Bradby. To learn more about HS2, go to hs2.org.uk or follow us on social media at HS2LTD.